Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well. Also, just a quick note that submissions for the Zibby Awards are open and will close on September 15th. Go to zibbyowens.com and you will find the Zibby Awards open submissions where we celebrate all the under-celebrated parts of a book, like the best spine, the best author's note, the best table of contents. And authors can nominate their own best publicists, best editors, and so on. There will be an in-person award ceremony in October in New York. You will not want to miss it. Go to zibbyowens.com. Chloe Cooper-Jones is the author of Easy Beauty, a memoir. Chloe is a writer based in New York City. In 2020, Chloe was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in feature writing for Fearing for His Life, a profile of Ramsey Orta, the man who filmed the killing of Eric Garner. She was the recipient of the 2020 Whiting Creative Nonfiction Grant and the 2021 Howard Foundation Grant from Brown University. Both grants are in support of her book, Easy Beauty, a memoir which finds the author, after unexpectedly becoming a mother, embarking on a journey across the globe to reclaim the spaces, both physical and emotional, that she had been denied and denied herself. 
Welcome, Chloe. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your beautiful memoir, Easy Beauty. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I will admit we almost did this two weeks ago and I just hadn't had enough time to properly read and prepare. And I knew I would love the book and wanted to read the whole thing. So thank you for letting me postpone. And now I've read the entire book and it was really beautiful and moving. And I thank you for sharing so many of these intimate experiences and thoughts and your analysis of everything and all of it. It was really great. So thanks. Thank you. Thanks. That's very generous. And thanks for just taking the time to read it. I know everybody's very busy in their lives. So it's a great honor when anybody just gives me that gift of their time. I, it was a, it was a pleasure. (laughs) Do we start by talking about Roger Federer? Because you have a whole section and my husband is a former tennis player. I mean, he still plays tennis, but he taught professionally and coached and all this stuff. And he is a massive Roger Federer fan. So we watch everything all the time. And I loved reading your whole section about your sort of ode to Federer and the beauty of his backhand, this one-handed backhand, which I hear about all the time. He said in the book, he said, I try to make everyone watch tennis with me. Bobby relents and we spend hours on the couch, half watching the matches, but mostly talking about his adventures on Tinder. And then you go (laughs) on and you said, when I saw Roger Federer play for the first time all those years ago, a strange thing happened. My perception was sharpened briefly, allowing me a heightened moment of noticing. Federer's backhand was beautiful and I didn't need anyone to explain that to me. I could see it. He opened a door and let me in. The more I watched him play, the more I learned. He became my teacher, my translator, and so I became devoted to him. I sat out all his matches. I began to hate his rivals. I moved forward, <laughs> learning more nuanced aspects of his game. I watched videos of his footwork. I listened to people analyze his kick serve. I found out what a kick serve was. I felt an urgency <laughs> to be in his presence, a summoning. He inspired nearly deranged reactions from his fans. I was fascinated by the eye I saw in their faces when the camera panned to the stands. All right. You and Roger Federer discuss. Yes. Well, so I, I got into tennis because I would, I didn't know anything about tennis. I never played and I would watch tennis at a bar with a friend of mine. Who's a bartender who would just like see so many things in the game that I couldn't see so many nuances of the game or he would understand how points were constructed. And, you know, I didn't see any of that. I just saw a ball going over the net. And I'm always, I think one thing that kind of links a lot of my interests is perceptual experiences that seem at first very opaque or confusing. And then through time or patience or education or a great teacher or mentor, a previously opaque or difficult experience becomes sort of, you know, you can see it, you can have real perceptions about it. And I think that sometimes when we think about geniuses, often what we're locating, not always, but often what we're locating is people who give us the ability to change our perceptions about something and to see something. So that passage you read about Federer is such a good example, because he was somebody that when I watched him play, I thought, oh, I'm seeing something else here. I'm seeing, you know, it's like, it's not just somebody knocking a ball over a net, which is impressive and something I can't do, but 
I was seeing somebody really play at a different level. And I love that. Maybe you've had that experience, like watching the Olympics, watching some sport you don't know anything about. And then the best person plays and you're like, oh, (laughs) have you had that experience? I can't think of a specific moment, but yes, I know. I know what you mean. So that's, yeah, in general, that's so fascinating to me. And swimming, I feel like diving and swimming. Oh, totally. Aren't like in the, and I'm like, I thought I swam. (laughs) This is swimming. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. And all of a sudden you see exactly how complicated that, that incredible, you know, physical art is. And so I think with Federer, I just really admired him. He became like a teacher that helped me understand a lot more about tennis. And then I went on the tennis tour for, I wrote about tennis for GQ for about a year. And this is not in the book, but I will say I I did get to know Federer while I was on the tour. And he was, he's like everything you want him to be. He was so gracious, so brilliant, so smart, so good with everyone. And we would walk around the tennis gardens and he would know everyone's name and he would know things about them. And it would be journalists, coaches, other players, obviously, but also security guards, people that did the player's laundry, people who did transpo, who restrung rackets. He would just know, you know, it's like, that's his world. That's his home. And he treated everybody on the tour with so much respect and, and, and genuine curiosity too. Like he always was asking lots of questions. So he, he's a rare figure maybe that lives up to the, I thought lived up to the hype, or at least is unbelievably good at performing these sort of social acts, but I think they were quite genuine. So if your husband is a big Federer fan, just say, Chloe thinks it's justified, highly justified. I'm going to just have him listen to this whole thing. So (laughs) (laughs) any other private Federer things you should know before we move on to the rest of the book? One, One really, this may seem like a small thing to some people, but is really was very telling and moving to me is once I was interviewing him for a piece about Juan Martin Del Potro, about a completely Mm -hmm. different player. I love, by the way, I like, yeah, I love all the spirit and the crowd reaction and like, oh my gosh, but okay. Del Del Potro is amazing. I wrote a profile of him for GQ. That's my favorite tennis piece probably that I wrote. And Federer was like, well, I want to talk about him. Like, you know, just was so generous with his time to be a secondary source on a profile that, you know, had nothing to do with Federer. And he's in a lot of that profile. But I think one detail that I left out is when when I was interviewing Roger, we were in a hallway outside of a press room. It was just sort of, we were moving together. And I was asking him questions and he just went, hold on a second, let's stop. And then he was like, come with me. And he found a place for us to be. And he was like, I just want to sit where we are eye to eye because I'm much shorter than him and I'm much shorter than everyone. And he was like, I don't want to stand above you. Like I want to sit somewhere. And so he ended up like basically doing like a squat against a wall, like a chair sit so that he could be eye to eye with me. And then, and then talk to me, would only talk to me like that. And I thought, wow, that's a very classy for a very short lady. That's a very classy move. So, (laughs) wow. That's amazing. I don't think that's a small woman. I think that's, I think that's big. And I think it's particularly big in light of, other terrible things that have happened to you in, in similar alleyways <laughs> and confined spaces by men who are the exact opposite in how they've treated you and your body. And to have that as a counterfoil, I think that's the right word, counterbalance to those 
experiences is really uplifting. Can you, you shared a lot in the, in the book about comments and insults and just all the complete like disregard for your feelings, which is, as I kept reading just more and more, not only, you know, just unconscionable, but like just so juvenile, right? I just kept thinking like, who are the people who are like, who could be just so insensitive to someone's feelings? I just, but there are those people, but anyway, I'll, I won't rant about that. But basically you said, even after some of these insults or whatever, you wouldn't even want to involve your husband because you didn't want to bring your sort of stuff onto him. Tell me a little bit about that. And if this book has changed that. Well, I think one thing that's important is just that, you know, I do talk about moments in which people have said cruel or unkind things to me, often strangers, sometimes not, sometimes friends, sometimes people very close to me. But I think that the point of sharing those is, I mean, one, it's like, it's very common. Like none of these things are surprising. This is kind of a constant state of things. And I think the reason why is, or at least a large reason why is that all of us are moving around the world, like with our knee-jerk concepts. And so we're seeing all of us, every single one, it's not like a rare, you know, jerk or something, but all of us are moving around the world with certain embedded concepts about other people. And because our brains need to process things very quickly, we're sometimes reflecting back those first sometimes bad or stereotypical concepts wherever we are. And then usually if you're a person of conscious, you know, conscience and, and, and compassion and the ability to have critical thoughts, you'll, you'll override those bad narratives or those bad concepts and you'll have second and third and fourth and fifth thoughts about people. But often when I'm in public, other people don't have time to do that, right? Because they're as busy as me. So what's often reflected back to me is not their their innate cruelty, but I think more so the fact that we live in a world in which narratives around disability are still really bad and really backwards. And so what I see a lot is just people's assumptions about my weakness or my inability or my lack of agency. And I have to ask like, you know, myself, like, well, where does that come from? And it comes from the way that quite often disabled bodies are talked about in just the world around us, that there's something inherently lesser, there's something inherently desexualized about the disabled body. You know, I think of it always as like the Beth from Little Women model, where it's like the other sisters get to be smart and have romance and have lives and have agency and have really complex personalities, whereas Beth is frail and and an angel and perfect and then dies to help spoiler alert she dies in <laughs> little women if people haven't read little women she dies and it's like her death sort of signifies the realness of other lives and that's a narrative we see all the time surrounding disability and if that you know that that were tragic figures that were weak figures that were figures that that exist for other people realer people's inspiration and that narrative, I just see, that's what I actually see reflected back. So these moments of like, quote unquote, cruelty from others, 
I find are really linked up to bad social narratives that they're just not thinking very critically about or Mm -hmm. checking themselves or trying to have a second or third thought to transcend that first sort of negative stereotypical thought. And so a lot of the work I feel so committed to in in this book and a part of a reason why I wanted to be so honest about a lot of these experiences is to talk, to try to, in some ways, shift that bad narrative, even by an inch, you know, like just if my book like does one tiny little dent in that narrative, then all the time and work will have been worth it. But I also think it's really important to acknowledge that I can do the same types of dehumanizing activities. I'm not exempt from it. I'm human like anybody else. I'm susceptible to all these bad narratives that I both internalize about myself or can turn on other people. So the thing I'm asking others to do in the book for me, I also am very explicit about recognizing that I have to do that myself for Mm -hmm. for others. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that that was maybe a long way of (laughs) maybe not answering your question, but, but felt like I have to address it. And then with my husband, it just, I think, and I'm curious how you feel about this, like in any sort of intimate, close relationship, whether it's with your partner, your kids, your mother, your best friends, there's always sort of an awareness in me of not wanting to spill all my pain onto them or my hurt or my frustrations with the world. And yet those are the people you need to share those things with in order to feel truly close to them in a way you don't feel with strangers. So that balance is just really tricky, I think, in life. I still think about it a lot where that threshold is between intimacy and and that responsibility to not put everything on someone. You know, does that make sense? It, it does, but maybe I'm just too selfish because I end up... <laughs> sharing like every single bad thing that's happened to me with my partner all the time. So I should probably take a page from your book, literally and figuratively, and uh, and probably zip my mouth shut a little more. No, I think I went too far the other way. And it, it, you know, I think I was for a long time, like always holding my true self back from everybody, including the people I needed to actually, it's just a bad, yeah, it's just a balance. So I don't think I'm any better at it. I think I'm just on the other end of the spectrum sometimes, although I think I'm a little better now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. And I probably should have started this episode because we didn't even, I didn't even have you explain what this book is even about. I just went right into the tennis. So sorry about that. (laughs) Maybe you should give like your one sentence about what the book's about (laughs) for people who now have analyzed backhands and their own, you know, inner relationship monologues. (laughs) I think, you know, for a certain segment of your fans, learning to love Roger Federer is a good tagline, you know, like maybe it's true. You know, it's uh, having the conversations not usually had, right? (laughs) But I mean, I, yeah. So my book takes place over the present of the book takes place over an 18 month period in which I'm traveling the world, mostly for journalism and and other research projects. But as I'm doing that, I'm trying out sort of an experiment within myself to see if I can make some changes in my behavior, most specifically around my own sort of concept of my body, my disability, how disability is seen in the world, the way that other people have seen me, how that shapes my own behaviors, and most specifically how it shapes my own ability to be a present member of my family for my husband and my son. Good. So now everybody knows what it's about. (laughs) It's a quest. It's a quest quest. that involves seeking advice from Roger Federer (laughs) and Beyonce and, and like sculptures and stuff. So I have to say, I love the image of you laying outside of the Bernini sculptures with Mm -hmm. like, one leg across, like stretching your hips and like laying, I'm, I'm doing this like anyone can see, but laying on the grass, <laughs> like, you know, looking up at the blue sky and stretching after like the stressful, difficult navigation of the museum or whatever else. But just that you're like, you know what? I'm going to lay here as long as I need to. I'm going to make my hips feel better. And I really don't care. And you know what? I was like, go you. That's so awesome. <laughs> I mean, you know, seriously, because like I, in a, in a, able-bodied or whatever you want to, I don't know what the right word is. I don't want to, you know, just in a regular whatever, I would be really self-conscious to lay down in the grass and stretch. Unless I guess I was in my workout clothes and I was like, people might think I'm stretching from a run or like, like if I were just to do that for fun, I, I feel like I would have all these sensors just being like, what do people think? And like, honestly, who cares? Do you know what I mean? Like who cares? And I feel like you've achieved this, you know, even the way you answered that question about the insults or whatever, 
is you it's it's like you analyze the other people, you analyze the situation, you're very rational about it, but ultimately <laughs> you you almost just don't care because you found your space for yourself and you're going to live your life that way and that's the way it is in the most respectful way possible. Well, I think that's the goal. I don't think I'm, you know, I don't think I've figured that out all the time, but I, and I think the book is largely about me struggling to do exactly that. And some chapters I'm doing a little better and sometimes I regress a little bit and sometimes I get brave and, and can handle things. And other times I feel afraid of what it means to really try to be to take up, I think the way you said it is nice, like take up the space that I actually take up. That's a really hard thing that I'm still, I think, evolving on and and trying my best to figure out. But I do think it just seems like the most necessary project for me as a mother, because Mm -hmm. I, you know, and anybody who's a parent has probably had this experience. Like there are all these things in me that I wanted to hide from myself, all the worst parts of myself that I wanted to hide from my son. I didn't want him to be like me. And I didn't want him to be afraid in the ways that I was afraid. And I kind of thought, well, I'll just tell him not to be afraid. I'll just tell him to be kind other, I'll just tell him to not be, you know, dissociated from (laughs) strangers or, or the, but of course it's like, that doesn't work. You, You actually have to model these things for your kids. And it's so infuriating to me as a mother that I have a, such a, like unbelievably observant, smart child, which that's children are just like that. There's such sponges. And so a lot of this book is me sort of struggling with that sense of confidence or peace um, within myself so that I can then authentically model it for my child, you know, who is worth everything, you know, is worth any sort of personal struggle or change that I could do. It was um, the part where you talk about getting pregnant and how you didn't know you were pregnant until you were five months along and how your whole life you'd been told you couldn't carry a child. And the whole time you were carrying the child, you were worried about what might happen to the rest of your body as a result of that pressure. And then even after you have the child, the worry that continues and the judgment where people are like, should you have a kid? Like he's running down this pier. Like that was another one of these highly just visual scenes where you're immersed as a reader, like your son running and you can't catch up with him, which by the way, is one of those classic, like with the scooter, you know, my kids scooter sometimes, and then they're out of your control. And you're just like, I'm back here. I, I see it all, but I can't do anything. But ultimately yeah. that is literally what it is to be a mom in general, right? Yeah, they're, yeah. they're going on ahead of us. And even though we want to, and we care, sometimes we can't, we just can't be there to stop everything from happening. It's like such a perfect mothering moment that you had there, the fear. Yeah. I think that's so nice that you say that because I think a lot of the point of that is like, everybody was so worried about me as a mother. They were so concerned. And my OB was like, is this even an ethical thing that you've done and to get pregnant, even though I I didn't, didn't mean to, I mean, I didn't, you know, whatever it was an accident, (laughs) you know, he, everybody around me was just like, are you really fit to be a mother in a way? And that feeling, I think really kept me from experiencing in pregnancy and in the early years of motherhood, a feeling of like being a part of something larger than myself, that feeling of like, 
being a part of like a tribe of mothers who were doing a difficult but valuable job. And so that sort of social reflection of worth that some mothers might experience where strangers are like, that's amazing. You're such a loving, caring person. Like I never got that. I only got this reflection of like, oh, I don't think you should procreate, which is of course also the basis of eugenics is a belief that a body like mine should not ever procreate. And then it's, you know, of course, when, when Wolfgang's running away from me on this pier and I can't catch up to him, it feels like in that moment, this validation of everybody's worst fears that in fact, I personally should not have been a mother, but in reality, it's exactly what you're saying. That is just the experience of motherhood. And so, and, and that, that constant awareness that you cannot and never will be able to fully keep your child safe. You can only do the best you can and love them as hard as possible. And so that I think in, in a weird way, that moment, and I'm so glad you are saying this and picked up on this and are responding to it in a weird way. That's actually the moment that I felt like I was just a mother mm-hmm. and not a disabled mother Yep. in a, you know, just because it was like, yep, that's right. <laughs> I can't, I'm going to do the best I can. And some of these things are going to just be outside of my control. And that's yet another one of the great, you know, pains of being a parent. Well, another one is that people will always judge you. And yeah. there will always be people on the outside thinking something about the way you're doing it, whether it's... Totally. You know, right? I mean, that, that's just part of parenting, right? It's like people, because no one really knows what they're doing. And so everybody feels like, I think everybody feels compelled to just rain on everybody else's parade, right? Like, look at her. (laughs) Like, I would be able to catch that kid, they might say. But you know what? Guy, you might not have either. You know, you might be able to run, but like that kid might be running away from you in a few years. Maybe you're too... I mean, you just don't know. So yes, unfortunately, the two go hand in hand, but yes. So true. Yeah. Parenting. Well, you write really beautifully (laughs) about about your son. He seems like a really awesome guy. Um, How old is he? How old is he now? He's 10 and uh, he's 10 years old. He's the coolest kid in the world. He's skateboarding outside right now, I think. And, and he's just amazing. Yeah. He's such a funny child and now is like my best travel buddy. So he, I just had a two month tour basically. And he went on a lot of the tour with me and just was like, Oh, this is the best thing ever. Like he loves even waiting in airports. That's like a wild human. Um, I don't know any humans that love all the logistics of travel, but when we got home from Tori was like, let's leave our apartment and just get an RV and just travel around the country all the time. So that's sort of his dream scenario right now. He's definitely picked up my travel bug, which is nice. Yeah. Go do it. Just do it. Take a year. I think we're going to go to, we're going to try to go to Europe this summer. I was going to take him in 2020, but you know, some yep. things came up that year, but he's never been to Europe. So I think that'll be our next. We're going to go to some museums and together look at some art this summer, hopefully. That sounds nice. We're thinking about doing something similar, but. Oh, good. We'll see. We'll <laughs> see if I can. Uh, my kids also have the RV dream, but um, we slept outside <laughs> in an RV at a uh, this family birthday party where they didn't have room for us inside. And I think after like five of us in an RV for the night, they were like, okay, fine. You know, we'll go back. <laughs> we'll go back to bedrooms. Thank you very much. But anyway, <laughs> are you working on another book? Do you think what's coming next? Yes. 
that's going on. Yeah. I, yeah. I have two, two books actually that I'm kind of somewhat working on simultaneously that are in some ways, like, I think together the three of them form with easy beauty form, like a triptych is what I keep oh. calling it just because trilogy implies that you would need to read them in order, but these are mm-hmm. three separate books and, but they all are sort of linked by a specific sort of underlying philosophical question. One is, you know, the first one's obviously about beauty. The second one that I'm finishing now is about devotion, the mm. nature of devotion and some sort of history and philosophical ideas around devotion. And the third is about kinship. Mm. And so right now I'm kind of thinking through these three ideas and, and how they're connected and how I process them specifically through like experiences with art. And maybe it yeah. could be like easy beauty, difficult friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Typical know, devotion. So, so devotion, you know. <laughs> yeah, you, yes, please. I don't have titles for these other books. I just have the material. So yeah, if you have any ideas. That would be funny. Titles. You have like an easy, medium, and hard, you know, <laughs> medium devotion, hard friendship. Beginner, advanced. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you could do like expert. the little ski, the ski run, like a green and a blue a blue square, and then like a black diamond. Or something. Black diamond, yeah. 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 Okay. These are good. I'm I'm going to take these suggestions. Okay, Thank you. These are not good, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> what is your advice for aspiring authors? Oh, great question. Okay. Here's my advice. This is something a writing teacher said to me a long, long, long time ago. And I think about it almost every day that I sit down to write is she said to me, imagine that you're sitting down at a piano and you're looking at the 88 keys and you know that they have been played over and over and over again, all these different configurations and that, you know, for hundreds of years, people have been playing these same 88 keys. And she said, now your job is to look at these 88 keys and play the note that only you can play. Mm. I always thought, you know, of course, like there's, there's something inherently impossible about that. And that's kind of the point of her analogy. But at the same time, it's like, whenever I think about that, when I'm writing a sentence, I'm always trying to say like, is this a note that only you could play? Is this this a sentiment only you could express? Is this a way of writing that only I could do it? And the more I ask myself that question, the harder I sort of push into my own experiences and my own mind and the way that I process things and the things that I've read and my own lens on the world. And I try to sharpen through that advice, like sharpen the specificity of that lens Mm. with the hope that when somebody reads my book, they think, or reads any of my writing, they go, well, she's really playing music only she could play, even though she's still using the same 88 keys that we all have to use. So that- We only have 26. Really? We only have 26? Well, we have 26 letters. Really. Oh, letters. Right. Yes. yes. Even harder for us. <laughs> we, yes, I know. We have it harder than, than <laughs> piano players. Yeah. We, it's true. Lightweights over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I love that advice. I think about it all the time. And, and I think the sort of paradoxical nature of that advice is actually kind of lovely and helpful in a way. Yeah, completely. Chloe, thank you. This was so interesting and fun. And thank you for the time and for letting me have a redo. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad. This was so lovely. Thank you for reading my book and for having me on. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 